Lord, we just thank you so much for this opportunity for us to continue talking about the Great Commission. We pray, Father, you'd fill us with your spirit as we look at your word. And I just pray this would be a real encouragement to people, Lord, that they would be challenged. And, um, Lord, that we would find the right motivation to um, share Jesus with other people as we have come to contact the gospel ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week, by way of review, we looked at Romans 10. Remember, uh, Paul's logic in reverse is there are those that send and preach. All right, we're all in, we all should be involved in some aspect of that, getting people out there, getting people out to proclaim. But then the hear, believe, and call, that's all between the Lord and the other person. And only God can save them. So there's really only two things as a church that we need to really feel responsible for. And that's the sending and the preaching part. Not every one of us is going to necessarily be doing a ton of proclaiming or preaching, but hopefully all of us will do some of it. But all of us can be involved in the sending. And and, and we're going to look a little bit about, at that later. We also looked at Matthew 28 last week, and we talked about how the 11 met with Jesus first, and then they also worshipped him. So worship and meeting with Christ is is integral to our gospel witness, and then understanding that Christ has all authority, and it's on the basis of that authority that Jesus says, go, and then he promises to be with us to the end of the age. We also gave you guys some practical suggestions. We're going to rehearse some of these suggestions through our text today. But we, we suggested last week that you really want to put your own walk with the Lord first. You can't help somebody else if you're dying for oxygen, right? It's really understanding your own love for Christ and Christ's love for you that gives you the proper motivation to want to share with others. Uh, prayer, pray for the Lord of the, you know, pray for workers in the harvest. We talked about holy choices, loving your family, your church family, and then being on the lookout. That's one of the things that the Lord has helped me grow in lately is I'm a lot more on the lookout for his lost sheep. Um, and so we'll talk more about that here in a second. We also suggested this app that we are having you guys test out for us. And um, this is one way to, to just give you guys some tools to send out this app. You can go on the app and start learning, I think, a very sound method for sharing the gospel and the movie that we watched last week. If you guys have looked at our website lately, we've also suggested um, on our website, it's updated now. And the thing I really like about it is it's very, very easy to share sermons. And so you can go to the sermon page. And then when you click on a particular sermon, like this is Pastor Milton's Christmas sermon, you can share it in all kinds of formats, texting, email, Facebook. So I've been able to share sermons. Um, I, you know, I've shared sermons in the past, but this is like so convenient now, the way that it's set up on our webpage, that you can send these out to your unbelieving friends and family as a way to share the gospel. All right, so we're going to open up to Second Chronicles chapter 29 we'll talk a little bit about chapter 28 but we're gonna this may seem kind of odd we're going to talk about hezekiah's great commission what can we learn about the great commission from the old testament i mean isn't the great commission a new testament thing where jesus sends the church out 
I want to suggest to you that God has been in the business of sending people out since the very beginning. And, um, and we definitely see it here with Hezekiah. So let's talk, first of all, about the setting. You think things are bad now. Um, there are some things when we look around our world and our country to be concerned about. But what if you lived in the day of King Ahaz? That is, King Ahaz been king who took Judah back to that old-time religion, Baal worship, and got back to good old family values of burning his children in the fire to Baal. Let's just say he was way pro-choice, um, basically saying royalty has the right to worship Baal however they want, however they choose. Fortunately, Hezekiah escaped the pro-choice revival bonfire meetings and so to become the king and so you've got this guy named Ahaz this is where Ahaz fits in he's a, a king in the late 700s when we say late 700s we're talking about around 730 to 715 he's a, about 16 years or maybe 20 years there's a little bit of debate exactly how long his reign is and um so he's just a really wicked guy. And let's say he's on the throne for 20 years. And then we're going to talk about Hezekiah. He's on the throne for 29 years. So we're talking about a 50-year period. I'm 50 years old. So just think about what's happened since 1968. And that's kind of the time period we're talking about. But if you add Ahaz and Hezekiah together, about a 50-year period that we're going to talk about um, this morning. So... Ahaz goes back to Baal worship. What does God do in response to Baal worship and burning of your own children to Baal? Well, the Lord does what the Lord does. He delivers Ahaz or King Ahaz been king into the hands of other kings. And if you look at chapter 28, which we're not going to, but chapter 28, Syria comes down, carries away a great multitude. Pekah king of Israel, not Pikachu, Pika, comes down and kills 120,000 people, verse 6 of chapter 28. Then there's 200,000 captives, women and children, that are carried away. They end up getting rescued by a prophet named Oded. Or Oded. Um, then Edom and Philistia come down and attack. And if that's not enough, Assyria, the king of Assyria, comes down and attacks. If you look at verse 19 of the previous chapter, chapter 28, here's the summary statement or some of the summary statements. Verse 19, for the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Things are not good. And not only that, Ahaz gets worse, not better, when he receives the chastisement. Look at verse 22. Now, in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. And the New King James ends the verse this way. And the King James says, this is that Ahaz. So Ahaz becomes increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. Yeah, that's the Ahaz we're talking about. Then, verse, look at verse 24, 25. Ahaz actively restrains the worship of God and promotes the worship of false gods. Verse 24 says, 
So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of the Lord, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoke to anger the Lord God of his fathers. How do you like to live in the time of Ahaz? The church gets closed. There's no more people allowed to go into the house of the Lord. There's false places set up in every single city. Every single city has some sort of place to worship Baal. It's almost like here in, if, in Riverside, if they shut down all the churches and in every precinct of Riverside, they're setting up another massage shop or another Planned Parenthood or some other false religion all over the city. That's pretty much what's going on in the time of Ahaz. So which takes us to basically four points that we're going to make about Hezekiah's great commission, starting with this. Hezekiah does right like David. And the question we're going to ask is why? Where does this guy come from? So look at chapter 28, verse 27. We'll pick it up right here. Verse 27, I'm reading from a New King James. So Ahaz rested with his fathers. They buried him in the city in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him in the tombs of the kings of Israel. It's interesting when wicked kings are on the throne and they die, even if the country's completely wicked, they all know this was not a good guy and he should not be buried with the other kings. doesn't matter how wicked the culture becomes. Nobody's honoring Ahaz when he dies. So, but verse 22, then Hezekiah, his son reigned in his place. Chapter 29, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Whenever you're reading through Kings or Chronicles and, and, the, and the writer says they did right like David, that's a good thing. When they say they did not follow in the ways of David or they followed in the ways of Jeroboam, that's a bad thing, right? So Hezekiah is a good king. The question is, why? How do we get a Hezekiah from an Ahaz? What do you guys think? Say it again. Okay, we clearly have a movement of the Lord here. So there is a divine cause. There's always divine cause. Is there a possible human cause in the text? No? Brian says no. Okay, there is a grandfather. Jotham was a good king. But what about right here in this immediate text? Alvin? His mother. So we've got a lady named Abijah who is the daughter of Zechariah. That name sounds pretty priestly to me. Um, you'll notice that some of the queens end up being related to priests. Um, we don't always know that, but there's a lot of, a lot of times where that's true. Um, I think by implication, and some com a lot of commentators would agree with this, is he got his religious training from somewhere. It's probably from his mama. 
fact, John Gill says this. Uh, her, her name, she's called Abby over in Second Kings. His mother, John Gill says, uh, the name, her name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. Perhaps the daughter of the same was taken by Isaiah for a witness, who very probably was a very good woman and took care to give her son a religious education, um, though he had so wicked a father. Okay, this is kind of an implication. We don't know this with absolute certainty. Maybe there's some nurse or some other person that is not mentioned in the text. But when the Bible mentions names, anything that's mentioned in the text, it's always there for a reason. Things aren't just thrown in randomly. Um, names, dates, genealogies, th these are all there for a purpose. And so I want to suggest that Abijah is not just kind of a throw in. Abijah is there to help support the idea of verse 2, that he did right in the sight of the Lord. The question that we should be asking is, how can anything good come out of Ahaz because of Abijah? And so this should be an encouragement to us, you moms. You know, maybe you're trying to raise kids and you're raising kids with a guy that doesn't really seem to care a whole lot about the Lord. Um, there is hope. Um, maybe you feel like, man, I... I don't have time to, I'm not going out and passing out tracks, one track a day, or I'm not going out on street corners and doing these things that Pastor Mike's talking about. I'm just home teaching the Bible to my children. Guess what? That's what Abijah was doing. And while there's no guarantee that your children are going to rise up and bless the Lord, um, you do have that opportunity to have an influence on them um, the way Hezekiah's mother had an influence on him. Let's talk about a second aspect of Hezekiah's great commission. That is Hezekiah does first things first. Let's take a look at really the rest of the chapter, but starting in verse three in the first year, notice this in the first year of his reign, that is Nisan. I mean, in the first month, the month is Nisan. Um, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. The note, if you cross-reference over to a uh, verse 17, it says the priests began to sanctify on the first day of the month. And so you've got the first day, the first month, the first year, he gets busy. Alvin, did you have a question? Oh, okay, that's cool. Just stretching. Yeah, that's cool. Um so Hezekiah, it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't even seem like the the tombstone is settled yet on Ahaz's grave. And Hezekiah's like, mama said, knock you out. I'm going to knock you out. He just starts going ape on Baal worship. Um, he doesn't try to settle in, make make friends, make everybody happy. As soon as he gets into office, it's on. Look at verse 4. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites, gathered them in the east square, and said to them, Hear me, Levites. Okay, so now he's getting a conference together. Um, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Take the trash out. Why is there rubbish in the holy place? 
Ahaz closed the doors. <clears throat> he, he just put up, remember he cut uh, several of the elements or the um, stuff for worship into pieces, had things laying around, some for Baal worship. <clears throat> and so it's in disrepair and disuse. And so he's telling them to tr- take out the trash Verse 6, for our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, have uh, not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. What's the result? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he had given him has given them to trouble, uh, up to trouble, to desolation and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. Verse 9, For indeed, uh, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now remember, the people he's talking to, they all saw 120,000 people killed, Right? Um, by um, Pekah, 200,000 were taken into captivity. Most of those were brought back, but they still have people in captivity. Then you've got the Syrians, the Philistines, Edom. So they've been getting hammered left and right. Okay, so he has this conference. He basically reminds everybody, hey, here's why we're experiencing the wrath of the Lord. We need to get back. To, to the Lord. We need to go back to Christ, back to Yahweh. Uh, verse 10. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away. So he's talking about renewing the covenant. Um, he says, do not be negligent now for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and to serve him that you should minister to him and burn incense. And so then in the next paragraph basically 12 to 19 you have the levites get together and say we're going to do what you're asking us to do we're going to take care of business Uh, look at verse 15 they gathered their brethren sanctified themselves and went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the lord to clean the house of the lord when they say sanctify themselves you kind of have to go back to leviticus to see what does that really mean a levite and a priest they could not just willy-nilly come walking into the into the tabernacle or the temple and just start worship, right? They had to be sanctified. They're sinners. So there's all this blood and water. They have to wash. They have to be sanctified. They can't have been... Um, they can't have been involved in any kind of idolatry. They could not have been touching a dead body. There's all kinds of things that they have to be purified from. And as we're going to find out, many of these Levites and priests had probably just probably just yesterday or two days ago, underneath the orders of Ahaz, been involved in Baal worship. So many of these folks had to go through a purification period in order to actually be able to enter in and start enter into the to the worship of Yahweh. So the Levites say, we're in. The priests in verse 16, they say, we're in. We're going to take out the debris. We're going to go pour it in the brook Kidron, so on. If you look at verse 17, now they began to sanctify the first day 
And then on the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord and they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. And on the 16th day in the first month, they finished. So these guys in 16 days get everything ready in the house of the Lord for worship. That is lightning fast for these guys to get in, repair all the vegetables, repair the altar, get everything out of there that needs to be gotten out of there, go through the proper ceremonies to purify everything. In 16 days, they come back to Hezekiah. Look at verse 18. Um, Then they went to King Hezekiah and said, we have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar, burnt offerings with all its articles, the tabernacle, the showbread. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside in his transgression, we have prepared and sanctified. And there they are before the altar of the Lord. So you have a new administration that starts on day one to bring everybody back to worship. And within 16 days, theoretically, if there's people who want to worship Yahweh, it's ready to go. He puts first things first. So it's just one of the things that we see in this great commission that Hezekiah takes upon himself (coughs) um, is there's no use in going out and preaching Yahweh all around the tribes if there's no place to worship. If you want to meet with Yahweh at this time period, where did you have to go (coughs) to to, to experience his presence? You needed to be in the temple. If the temple's in disrepair and nobody's even there, the presence of the Lord's not there. And so <clears throat> worship is primary. And and I want to suggest to you that our worship, a lot of times in the church, sometimes we'll kind of belittle worship and say it's all about evangelism. I want to suggest to you that evangelism is incredibly important and we have this thing called Great Commission. But what are we bringing people into if we're not worshiping the Lord? If people get saved... And we're not really worshiping the Lord and our churches are in disrepair. We're not really meeting with God Almighty on planet Earth. And what are we bringing people to? Um, There is this thing called the body of Christ and the New Testament temple. God is not just saving you as an individual and saving me as an individual. We are baptized into a body and we are the royal priesthood now. We are the temple of God. And when we gather together, there's a special sense of God's presence when God's word is preached. And when two or three are gathered in his name, there I am in the midst of you. I think that has local church implications. And so worship is primary, not secondary. We get worship right. We get our relationship with the Lord right. Understanding the covenant, the new covenant, understanding the sacrificial system as it's typified in Christ, that we really understand Christ's atonement for us. And that we're confessing our sins as a body and we're drawing near to the Lord and our hearts are being filled up with forgiveness. Guess what that does to the body of Christ? Now we're like, we want to bring people into this thing. We want to go out and tell people so they can come experience what we're experiencing. Who wants to go evangelize when you come to worship and you and it's just dead and you're just being eaten up by gossip or you're just, you know, you're just getting hammered by brothers and sisters in Christ if it's not a healthy environment, it has a hampering, it hampers evangelism. Does that make sense? And so Hezekiah wants to put first things first. Let's continue on with this idea. Verse 20. So now that everything's set up, 
What does Hezekiah do? He's going to set the example. He rises early, <clears throat> gathers the rulers of the city. They went out to the house of the Lord. <clears throat> they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, for, the Ju for Judah. Then he commanded the priest, the son of Aaron, to offer them on the altar. So we're going to get together. We're going to start sacrificing now. These are sin offerings. This is let us let's repent and confess our sin and let's go to the blood. God has command has given us a system by which we can enter into his presence. We come into a system through blood sacrifice. This clearly points and reminds us of Christ and, and it points us to the, the need for ongoing repentance. So verse 22. So they killed the bulls. And the priests received the blood, sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, they killed the rams, sprinkled the blood on the altar. They also killed the lambs, sprinkled the blood on the altar. Why are they sprinkling all this stuff on the altar? To sanctify it, to set it aside for the worship of God. So that when they bring these sacrifices, the altar itself will be purified. And then they brought out the male goats of the sin offering before the king and the assembly. And they laid their hands on them. And the priest killed them. There's killing and blood and killing and blood. And they presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make atonement. Now notice this in the middle of verse 24. They're going to make atonement for whom? All Israel? For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering be made for all Israel. Wait a second. Hezekiah is king of what? Judah, he's king of the southern kingdom, Judah. We know that Benjamin's wrapped up in there too. But he wants this atonement to be made for all Israel. We're going to come back to this. This is a big deal. Hezekiah, he doesn't just have Judah in mind. He's looking out. He sees this covenant was made with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He's, he's thinking big. I want this. This is atonement for everybody, uh, for all of Israel. We're going to talk in a moment here why that's such a big deal. Uh, look at verse 25. Then he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, stringed instruments, harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad, the king of uh, uh, King Seir, and Nathan the prophet. Thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. Now we've done the, the sin offering sacrifice. Now we're going to get busy with singing according to the way that David had set up. We're going to start singing our praises to the Lord. Verse 26, the Levites stood with the instruments of David, the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began um, with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. So all the assembly worshiped, the singers sang. The trumpeter sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped. So he's leading by example. Sin offering, burnt offering, singing, trumpets. It's worship. It's all about coming before God Almighty, having a relationship with him, meeting with him. Verse 30, moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and worshiped. 
Verse 31, then Hezekiah answered and said, now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the Lord. Okay, so if you guys, we haven't talked about sacrifices for a while, but there's an order to this. There's the sin offering to confess sin and become cleansed. Now that our sin has been taken care of, we can offer our burn offerings and now we can start giving thank offerings, which is just a thanks to the Lord. It's just it's just us coming and and giving our our thanksgiving and praise and entering into that relationship with the Lord as a community. So now that we've got these thank offerings in the house of the Lord, so the assembly brought in the sacrifices, thanks offerings, and as many as were willing brought burnt offerings. If you guys remember your study of Leviticus, we all have to bring the sin offering. But then there's other offerings that we just, it's a free will offering. We, I want to give more to the Lord. I'm going to, I want to give a thanks to the Lord for forgiving us our sin and taking us out of the time of Ahaz. I want to give a thank offering that the Lord has put somebody else on the throne. We're no longer worshiping Baal and having to burn our children to Baal. Yes, my wife is still in captivity, but you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to trust the Lord with that. And I'm going to give up a thank offering now to the Lord. Look at what the people do. Verse 32. And the number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs. All these were a burnt offering to the Lord. And the consecrated things were 600 bulls, 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few so that they could not skin the burnt offerings. Therefore, their brethren and the Levites helped them until the work was ended and until the priests had sanctified themselves for the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. We don't, you know, from a New Testament standpoint, it's hard for us to understand this, but you don't just get sanctified overnight. It takes time for a priest to go through all of the rituals to become ceremonially cleaned where he can get in and participate in this. And so there's some unorthodox things happening in this revival. The priests are the ones that are supposed to be doing all this, this stuff, this offering. There's not enough of them sanctified yet. There's too many burnt offerings, too many thank offerings, too much worship going on. So the Levites say, we're going to get in here and help out. And notice the Lord allows it. The Lord's going to, he allows for some unorthodox type of practices because of just the heart and the worship that is going on here. Look at verse 35. Also, the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offering, with the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Finally, verse 36. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the heart, prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly, or as some translations say quickly. So Verse 36 basically answers the question. Yeah, Hezekiah put first things first, but what accounts for this huge revival? I mean, just a few weeks ago, everybody's worshiping Baal. Ahaz is the guy on the throne. Everybody's, you know, experiencing just tragedy and, you know, people who have died because of the oppression and, but they're still burning their kids in the fire. All of a sudden, two, three weeks later, we're now worshiping Yahweh. Everybody's excited. All the people are worshiping. What accounts for this? Verse 36. Uh, God had prepared the people. God had prepared the people. And 
that's part of one of the things we need to recognize in our own evangelism when it comes to the Great Commission here at Cornerstone is God is the one that's going to be is preparing the hearts out there in the Inland Empire. What we need to do is put first things first and get busy with worship, truly worshiping God Almighty, confessing our sin, relying upon the, the finished work of Christ, asking God to change us, to make holy choices and saying no to sin and yes to God and to come and really offer our thanks and praise and continue to give sacrificially to the Lord. And then to trust and pray that the Lord's going to be preparing hearts as he moves on our heart. He's going to be preparing other people's hearts. If we run out and we're just running forward to try to evangelize the inland empire, but the Lord hasn't moved our hearts yet. And we're not really worshiping at the altar, so to speak. It's just going to be empty. It's going to be empty evangelism. We're off just trying to do some work for the Lord that hasn't, when Christ hasn't impacted us, we haven't really come to sense our guilt and need for blood sacrifice on the cross and so on and so forth. So first things first, and then we trust that the Lord is going to work on hearts. Let's talk about a third aspect of his Hezekiah's great commission. Hezekiah sends the good news out. So now after worship has been put in order and God has been moving on the hearts of his people, what do we see? Let's look at chapter 30, verse 1. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. All right, let's tear apart a couple things here. Hezekiah is he's sending letters. So one of the things he's doing is he's sending out gospel tracts, right? He's sending out emails, but notice who he's sending it to. It's not just to Judah. Who's he sending it to? Israel. And then he mentions Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh, sometimes they get spoken of as almost like the shorthand for all of Israel. You remember they're the sons of Joseph. Sometimes when you want to talk about Israel, you'll, the Bible will just say Ephraim. Sometimes when it wants to talk about Israel, it'll talk about Ephraim and Manasseh. So this is probably just a reference to everybody who is one of the other tribes of Israel, whether they live in Judah, because there are people who defected. I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but when Jeroboam went off on his crazy, I'm making up a new religion thing, you know, the festivist for the rest of us, a lot of people defected from the north, this, particularly the Levites and the priests, and came down to Judah. So in Judah, you don't just have Judites and Benjamites. You have people from Dan, Asher, Ephraim, Manasseh, all these people living down in the south who wanted to worship Yahweh, not worship the golden calves in Dan and Bethel. Do you guys remember that? I don't know if you guys remember in this part of your Old Testament history. So there was, there's defectors that are down south. So part of what's going on is Hezekiah is sending letters out to not just the Judites, but all of Israel that's down south. But we're going to find out. So, so uh, in the next verse that he goes beyond that. So but notice he wants people to come to Jerusalem to celebrate which feast? The Passover. This is the very beginning of the religious calendar. Nisan. This is the big one, right? 
kicks off the the week of unleavened bread. This is what Christ is doing in the upper room. Dis, upper room. The Passover is all of these feasts point to Christ in some way, but the Passover is kind of like the the pinnacle feast, right? That points to Christ's death. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so he's calling people in the Old Testament sense to Christ. Come to Christ. Come down to Jerusalem and participate in the Passover. We haven't done this for a long time. I want you to come down and do it. Look at verse 2. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. So he's called an evangelism conference, as it were. He's got all the leaders together and saying, hey, what are we going to do? We need to keep the Passover. This is a big thing for this revival. It's too late to celebrate it in the first month. Passover was the first month of Nisan, 14th day. Too late. We're not going to get people in time. We can't sanctify enough priests. So what are we going to do? They decide... We're going to do something unorthodox. This is another unorthodox move. We're going to celebrate the Passover in the second month. We would need to get people down here to work, to accept Christ, so to speak. Right? We want to get them to really come back to Christ. So we're going to celebrate it. By the way, there's a there's a precedent for this. The very first time that the Passover was set up, actually the second Passover. I don't know if you guys remember, but Aaron. There were several of them that weren't available to come down in the first month. And Aaron goes to Moses and says, hey, these guys aren't ready. We, they can't do it. Can they celebrate the Passover in the second month? And Moses consults the Lord and the Lord says, okay. So one of the principles you see in the old running that all throughout the Old Testament is God will give us law. But a lot of times when if people sincerely want to follow Yahweh, he makes exceptions. You know, not like Nadab and Abihu just bringing in strange fire. But these guys want to do the Passover in the second month. God's like, yeah, I love it. You guys have the right heart. You guys want to serve me. You want to love me. You want to celebrate it in a different month than the way that we normally do it. We're going to do that. And so so they make this conference. Verse 3, for they could not keep it at the regular time because uh, two reasons. A sufficient number of priests had not been consecrated. Nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. It would have taken too long to get everybody to Jerusalem. Verse 4. And the matter pleased the king and the assembly. So we're going to have some preaching now. Verse 5. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel. From Beersheba to Dan. Okay, let me see if I got my map here. Um. You guys probably can't see that, but way down towards the bottom, almost one of the bottom cities is Beersheba. Dan is at the very top. So what this is telling us is that there were preachers sent out, proclaimers, heralds, all the way from the south to all the way to the north. So now we're not just talking about people who defected to the south. Hezekiah has the gall to send heralds up into territory that is not in his jurisdiction. He's a king of Judah, but he's going to send people up into Hosea's territory. Hosea is probably still on the throne at this point. He hasn't been wiped out by the Assyrians yet and, and start proclaiming up there that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Judah, since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. 
long time, at least since Jotham, probably beyond. They definitely weren't doing this in Ahaz's days. So we're talking at least 20 years, probably more. Think about how long 20 years is. So what if Cornerstone had not worshipped since the year 2000? There's no Cornerstone worship for 20 years. We've all been kind of off doing our own thing. But then all of a sudden, 20 years later, we say, okay, we're going to get back together. So this is a big deal. Not only that, these proclaimers, let's find out more about these proclaimers. Verse 6, then the runners went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the command of the king. So he's sending runners out. I love this. Uh, um, you know, obviously they didn't have email back then. They didn't have the, but you know, they didn't have the Pony Express, but you would send people out literally running around the kingdom, carrying messages from the king. And they would, sometimes they would run and pronounce it themselves, or they would run and then give it to a herald. And then the herald would pronounce it. Um, and so these guys are running throughout the, throughout uh, and here's the message. Here's the gospel track that they're given. We have this word for word. Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Uh, then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Because Assyria had taken out a ton of them already. And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord of their fathers so that he gave them up to desolation. As you see, you see what's happened. Now do not be stiff necked as your fathers were, but yield. Here's his gospel appeal. Yield yourselves to the Lord. Enter his sanctuary. Stop going to the golden calf and Dan and Bethel. Get down here to the sanctuary where God really is, which he has sanctified forever and serve the Lord, your God that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. Come down here to get his mercy, and he's going to turn his wrath away from you. Verse 9, For if you return, if you repent to the Lord, and your brethren and your children, or your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead, have led them captive, so that they may come back to this land. That is a bold statement. If you repent, your family members that are right now in captivity in Assyria are going to be treated well, and they're going to return back to the land. How in the world would Hezekiah have any clue to say that? That's a pretty bold statement. Well, one, he knows that God's a merciful God, but two, he knows that God has made a covenant that when people turn to the temple and they pray that God will restore them back to the land. He says it many different times in the Old Testament. Hezekiah knows that. He's quoting Old Testament doctrine. Notice what he says in the middle of verse 9. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. He's quoting all kinds of different passages. Leviticus 28. No, I'm sorry. Leviticus 26. Deuteronomy 28. There's all kinds of repetitions of this principle. If people will return back to the Lord, particularly to the temple, when Solomon built the temple, Solomon says, Lord, if people, when you punish your people, when they come back here and they pray towards this temple, 
I pray that you will return them back from their captivity. The Lord says, boom, I will do it. And so Hezekiah is taking God at his word. So this is his gospel track that everybody's running around. They're just reading this gospel track. Verse 10. So the runners, what's, what, how, do, how do people respond to them? The runners uh, passed from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun. So if you look here, so they go running up. They're above. I've kind of made this bigger. So they go up above Benjamin to Ephraim, Manasseh, as far north as Zebulun. Uh, there's letters that probably were sent a little higher because we do know people from Asher responded and so um, these are the traditional divisions that people, the areas that people would have understood. Now, you need to realize Assyria has already come down and taken a lot of these people out. So these borders don't really exist anymore. But in a Jewish, in the Jewish mindset, these are the territories. Does that make sense? And so these runners go all over the place. But notice in the middle of verse 10, how did they respond? They laughed at them and mocked them. They're like, yeah, right. My wife, my children are in captivity. I'm going to come down to Jerusalem, start worshiping Yahweh again, and everything's going to work itself out, right? These runners, they just go out and they just proclaim the gospel that Hezekiah gives to them. But notice in verse 11, others react a little differently. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun, what did they do? humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. When you're reading your Old Testament and you see the word humble, you know what? Yahweh is right afterwards. When you see people, when you see the word cry out, God is Johnny on the spot responding to humility and crying out. So notice what happens, verse 12. And the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. And so there's just this amazing, this is an amazing turn of events. This is something that would be akin to the great awakening in the Americas in the 1740s and 50s. It's like, if you read anything about the great awakening in the United States before the great awakening, most people, their view of what was going to happen here, and it wasn't called the colonies yet, but in the Americas was, it's over. God's judgment is coming. We are so depraved. All of our young people, all they do is night walking and tavern going. That was the assessment of the young people. What is that? Cruising and bar hopping. That's all anybody was doing. All of a sudden, God starts sending out these preachers. And it seems like overnight, people come to know Christ and all these taverns close down. They didn't close down because the government shut them down. They closed down because nobody was going anymore to the taverns. There were so many people that got saved. And that's the type of response that seems to be happening down here in Judah. There's people from the north coming down. And so notice verse 13, how many people we're talking about. <clears throat> um, and so that really takes us to our fourth and final point. A very great assembly comes in. Hezekiah sends good news out. And God brings many people in. Verse 13. So many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, you remember, is that it starts with the Passover. Then you have a week of Unleavened Bread. 
So they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and they took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. Anytime there's false gods, they always get broken to pieces and thrown into the valley of Kidron or the brook of Kidron, whether it's raining or not. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves. They're ashamed that probably just a few weeks ago we were participating in Baal worship under Ahaz. We're idiots, but praise the Lord, we're here now. But some of them are still bemoaning the fact that they didn't get sanctified fast enough to participate in this. Verse 16, they stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God, the priest sprinkled blood received from the hand of the Lord. Verse 17, and there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore, the Levites charged, were in charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them of the Lord. Now notice here's something else unorthodox that happens. Verse 18, for a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover um, contrary to what is written. There, the gospel had gone out up into the north. All these people come down. There's not enough time to get everybody sanctified. And so they're eating the Passover. This is unorthodox. This isn't the way it's normally supposed to go down. So what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah prays for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, and uh, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. What does God do? The Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people, implication from their sins. God is so gracious, even though they're not following the letter of the law here, God theoretically could have like just wiped them out, but he sees what's going on in their hearts. And he says, I will answer this prayer. You see how compassionate God is and gracious. A lot of times we look at God of the old Testament. We think, oh, he's this persnickety guy that's just slaying people for any little thing. Reality is, is he's always looking at the heart of the matter. And sometimes people get slain. You're not really quite sure why it's because God knows the heart. Um, here these people come. They're not doing everything exactly right, but their heart is, is they want to repent, come back to the Lord. And so he's very willing. Verse 21. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. The Levites, the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord with uh, loud instruments. Notice it's loud instruments. It's okay to have loud music once in a while. Verse 22, and Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the feast and, uh, and offering peace offerings and making confessions to the Lord. So they're confessing their sin. They're eating. Yes, they're eating gluten and they're eating meat and they're eating all kinds of stuff to the Lord. Um, and just the joy and the happiness of the Lord. Last thing we'll say, and then we'll do some um, application, is after this, you would think, okay, great, we've all come back, we've repented, party's over, I'm going back north, we'll see you later. No, everybody is so moved that another unorthodox thing happens, verse 23, then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. And they kept it another seven days with gladness. They didn't re-sacrifice the Passover, but if you read the context... Everybody's like, 
we're enjoying this. We're going to hang out for more fellowship. We want a double dose of the Holy Ghost, right? This is like when you guys hang out after church and we're all trying to lock up and you guys won't get out of here, right? Um, these people want to keep fellowshipping. And so they stay for another seven days, thousand bulls in verse 24, 7,000 sheep, 10,000 sheep. What does this mean? Everybody starts giving more and more to the Lord. And then in verse 26, it says, since the time of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, there had not been anything like this in Jerusalem. This indeed was a great awakening. And then the final stamp of approval comes at the end of verse 27 that they pray and their prayer came up and uh, to his holy dwelling place to heaven, not just to the earthly temple, but it ascended to the heavenly temple. God was pleased. All this happens. It all gets kicked off. Obviously we know in God's sovereignty, he's the one that's setting this whole thing up. But there's a little mother named Abijah who's married to an evil man. And she's just teaching him the gospel in his bedroom. Think about that. That's how all this gets going. This mom who's married to an, an unbeliever, a guy who's worshiping Baal, who's burning some of her other children in fire. Don't you think she was crying out to the Lord for mercy? And here she is instructing little Hezekiah, teaching him the gospel. What do you think's going on in this little heart of this little guy as the Holy Spirit starts to move in him? And then the Lord in his judgment takes out his dad. Hezekiah, 25 years old, comes to the throne. This guy has been discipled for 25 years by his mom, who must have been an amazing woman of faith. And so... One of the application points is mothers don't underestimate your impact or parents in general. Um, you just have no idea. We, we really, we don't know it's in God's hands what the Lord's going to do with each of our children. Um, we're faithful and we trust the Lord, but you just don't know. I mean, for all Ab Abijah knew, Hezekiah was going to be just like dad. And that could have happened. We, we see it happen uh, throughout the Old Testament. But in this case, it took, and this guy went out, and it's one of the most amazing periods in Israel's history. But also, a second application is do first things first. What what was it when Hezekiah wanted to start making his reforms? He didn't just go on some political campaign. Um, he didn't just try to play nice with everybody or whatever. It was about worship. We need to take care of the worship question. Are we loving God? Do we understand his love for us? Are we drinking deeply of Christ in the Old Testament sense? We, are, we ask ourselves, are we drinking deeply of Christ? And that becomes the fuel that will fuel us for our evangelism. Uh, thirdly, be part of the Great Commission. You look, there's a lot of people involved. Not everybody was, not everybody was a runner, right? You have the, the runners went out. And then when the runners got to where they were going, they probably just stood there and read the King's Herald or the King's letter. Somebody, the King dictated the letter. The letter was written down. It was copied. Some people took the trash out of the temple, right? 
Um, some people were skinning animals. Um, everybody had a role to play. Um, the Great Commission is not just the one that's proclaiming and doing the heralding. The Great Commission is the one that's writing the tracks and printing the tracks. The Great Commission is the one that's taking trash out here on a Sunday morning to make this a good environment for worship. The Great Commission is someone that's passing out bulletins and smiling and welcoming somebody. The Great Commission is very, very, very big. The Great Commission is people that give um, and, and they give to this church so that we can support our missionaries and, and pastors and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of ways that we can be a part of the Great Commission. But fourthly, expect that God, there is a very great assembly that is out there. Um, it's interesting that Hezekiah, when he does this atonement and the sanctification before the assembly is even gathered yet, he makes atonement for all Israel. He's just expecting that God's got his people up there in these other areas and they're going to come. I'm going to make atonement, not just for Judah, but we're making atonement for everybody. Um, and so Christ, we talked about this last week. Christ has his people out there in the Inland Empire, wherever you're at. We don't know who they are. We don't know everybody that's going to come, but they're there. And, and we can go preach the gospel with the expectation that Christ is going to save his people, right? The Father has given to the Son authority to grant eternal life to as many as the Father has given him. That's just a fact. It's a, it's a reality. The Father has given certain ones to the Son. In fact, he's given authority to the Son over all flesh. But now the son is taking all flesh and he's giving eternal life to as many as the father has given him. And we don't know who those are. That's not our job to figure out who the chosen are, so to speak. Our job is to go out and just proclaim as broadly as we can. Let the Lord deal with that. And he's going to bring in his assembly. Does that make sense? Let me just give you one personal application. Then you guys can apply this any way you want. Um, so, you know, the Lord has been really trend I, I think the lord's been working on me here with my own evangelism and and um and so i'm excited to see the lord it feels like the lord has been giving me more opportunity not more i've always had opportunities but i think uh, i've been taking more advantage of the opportunities before me and the lord has been giving me a boldness that um I haven't always been taking advantage of so i would appreciate your prayers let's pray for each other but if you could pray for me in studying this passage, I was going back. I was going back over it last night at Panera Bread, and I was just noticing how the, all these runners did is they just ran up to these areas and just read the king's proclamation. That's all they did, and they got mocked and laughed at. Right, but there were many that did come down, and so I'm sitting at Panera last night. All of a sudden, a couple people come in. They're on a date. They're over there. I'm not really paying attention to them. But I'm flipping back through some of my notes. I'm looking at this stuff. All of a sudden, I'm looking over these people, and I'm looking, and I'm just like, you know, I was like, I gotta, I gotta say something to these people. I gotta share with these people. What can I do? And I had this little tiny devotion I had written for myself in the morning. You know, it was probably about two minutes long, and I'm just sitting there praying, and I'm like, this would be perfect. This would be absolutely perfect for these people. And I'm like, God, this is crazy. 
what, 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 you, what can I do here? And so I just finished up, my, I finished up my notes, but then they got up to leave, and I just got up, and I went over to them, and I said, this may sound weird, but I think the Lord wants me to share something with you from his word. Do you guys want to hear it? They said, sure. So I just sat there, and I read to them my Bible study. I just read it. I did, as, as passionately as I could, I just read it to them, looked them in the eyes, and I just said, and it was a gospel appeal, and I just said, thank you so much for listening. My name is Mike. They shared their name. And I went back inside, and I was like shaking. I'm like, ah. <clears throat> but it's like all I did, it's like the Lord blessed me in my quiet time in the morning, and then I just went and read my quiet time to a couple people. It took me three minutes. That's all I did. And but I was like so excited. I was like afterwards, I was just like, praise the Lord. And, and I'm not. This is the thing I have to be careful about as a pastor. I'm not telling you guys that you have to go out and share your quiet times with somebody every day. Otherwise, you should feel very, very, very guilty. No, just do what the Lord is calling you to do in your part of this thing. Right. We all have a role in the Great Commission. And I'm a pastor, so if I'm not out proclaiming the gospel, something's wrong because it's in my job description, right? I'm supposed to be giving my life entirely to the word and prayer, right? That is my job description is to be preaching the gospel and praying. And so if I'm not doing it, you guys should fire me. <laughs> but, um, but what is your role in this whole thing? Maybe your role is to just come buy me a bagel after I preach the gospel. I'm joking. <laughs> Or a taco, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, you know, you know what I'm saying? We all have a role to play, and so be, really be praying for what is your role, how's the Lord calling you, and just get in there and, and do something to participate in this Great Commission thing. Uh, I know I said I would end, but let me give you 30 seconds more. Here's one final challenge, is if you come and double dog dare me, to take you out witnessing, you don't have to do anything but just watch and pray. If, if you say, Pastor Mike, I really want to do something. I want to just go and watch you do something crazy, and I'll just stand by and pray for you. If you double dog dare a pastor, what am I going to do? I have to do it, right? That's my job. And so if you say, hey, I'll, I'll meet you. We'll, we'll set up an appointment. I'll take you either. Maybe you have a friend like I've got some people have asked me to come witness to a friend of theirs. I've done that. Or if you want to go somewhere to kind of a cold call, I'll go with you on a cold call. You want to go down to like Bannockburn and watch me make a fool of myself and like preach like to a bunch of strangers. And you just stand by embarrassed and pray for me. I'll do it. So and so that would be one way that I can help you help train you. You want to just I, go watch me pass out some tracks. I'll show you what I do. I have a little thing that I say that takes me about like 10 seconds when I pass out my Mitsu Fuchita track. Um, so if anybody wants to take me up on that, you have a guarantee that I will do it. I will go with you to some witnessing opportunity. All right? Is that a fair challenge? Or you can also text me and say, hey, I've, my dad really needs to hear the gospel. I've been meaning to share the gospel with them, but I'm so shy or I'm so scared. Would you meet with me at a restaurant and just share the gospel with my dad? I'm going to text you that right now. 
Yeah, well, I've been sharing with my dad a lot more lately. I keep inviting him to things. He keeps turning me down. He won't go to our Super Bowl party today. I keep trying to get him to come. But anyway, I've been sending my dad these um, story of the film texts, and I think I'm starting to make him mad. So um, anyway, all right, so that's the challenge. Okay, I'm hoping somebody will take me up on it. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity for us to learn from Hezekiah. And what an incredible man of God. We thank you, Lord, that ultimately it's your grace in his life. Thank you for Abijah and her faithfulness to her son. Uh, we pray, Father, that we be encouraged, um, that we, um, the smallest effort that we, that we put towards the Great Commission does not go unnoticed by you. People in this room don't have to go out and do any, they don't have to go open air preaching. They don't have to be a herald. Uh, but help us each to participate in some way. Uh, first and foremost, in our own worship of you, that we'd be filled up understanding your love for us, overwhelmed with the sacrifice, and that that would just spur us on to want to speak out for Christ. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.